It's good to be back tonight again to open the Word of God together. We had a great time this morning as we worshiped together. I'm always thankful that we can finish the day as we began the day, and that is in the study of the Word of God. I don't think there's really any better way to to spend a day with start and finish, uh, really bookended, if you will, with the hearing of what God has for us as He teaches us through His Word. So I'll ask you to open your Bibles with me and turn to John's Gospel. Gospel of John, chapter 13. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for our time tonight. We thank you that we can come and open your Word and we can be challenged by it. We can have our thoughts arrested. Think about our own Christian living, our own lives before you as we look at Jesus Christ and how he orchestrated his life here on this earth, always committing himself to the will of you and never failing to do that at any level. And so what an example we have, what a empowerment we have by your Holy Spirit to help us do exactly what you have asked us to do. So tonight as we learn that, may it become part of our life for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we find ourselves in chapter 13, and we are embarking again upon what is the final week in the life of Jesus Christ on earth. Not only the final week of his physical life, but also his physical and personal ministry on earth. Jesus Christ will die in less than a few days, at least in the narrative of John's gospel, and his physical life will end, but also his physical and personal ministry with him personally here on this earth, that too will end once this week is over. There will be a radical change that will have taken place in how the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is carried out on the earth. No longer will it be through Jesus Christ physically here walking the face of the earth, but it will take place now through His spiritual children as they are directed and guided by the Holy Spirit that will indwell them some 50 days after His resurrection. And all who know Jesus Christ by faith who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so we come to chapter 13, the beginning of this final section of the gospel and Christ's final physical teachings for those who are his own. No longer is he dealing with the crowds. No longer is he dealing with the Jewish leaders by way of Loving confrontation, which seems to be the pattern by which they come to Jesus. Very few of them would get saved. There was always this confrontation taking place, and Jesus always in a loving confrontation with them, because I truly believe as He created them that He loved them. No longer is He out in the public. Here, beginning in chapter 13, that time has ended. He is now alone with the few. And he is giving them his final instructions before he goes to glory. If you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall in a 
meeting that only some will hear about. Uh, it's a very important meeting in our country coming up in the next day or so. It would be nice to be a fly on the wall of that meeting. If you ever wanted to be a fly on the wall of a meeting, the final chapters of John's gospel is your chance. Right? And really, more than that, more than just being a fly on the wall of a meeting with Jesus Christ and the final disciples that are there by God's gracious design, by that same faith that we have, so too is our faith in Christ and takes us off the wall, really, and places us in the meeting with them at the table in the upper room to receive the same instruction for us. And so when I speak of the final instructions for a saved people, put yourself there if you know Jesus Christ. These are the final instructions Christ has before he goes to glory for all of us. And we've already covered much of chapter 13 in our study. And so for tonight, I just want to begin and focus our attention on verses 31 to 35. Follow along as I read. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, when he, the he that has gone out is Judas. When Judas had gone out after betraying Jesus Christ, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify himself, glorify him in himself, and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. As we have studied this particular section of the Gospel of John, I have continued to highlight, or at least tried to highlight for us, the emphasis that is being made continually by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit concerning the doctrine of love. The doctrine of love. In fact, as you may have noticed as I was reading verse 31 to 35, And through your own study of this gospel, you may have found out that there are many, as you read commentaries and commentators who have written on the gospel of John, they will tell you that this is to be described, this entire gospel, as the gospel of love. It has, in fact, been called by some the gospel or God's love letter to the world. And I suppose that's a good title for the Gospel of John, if you wanted to place a title over it, in verses like John 3.16 might, in fact, even cause us to describe it that way, for God so loved the world. And yet the word love, interestingly enough, is used more often in the final chapters of the Gospel of John than is ever used in the beginning chapters of the Gospel of John. Just as a side note, by way of those of you who like statistical facts, might be interested to know that the word love in our English versions of the Gospel of John is used on an average of 20 times, depending on the version that you might have. And all of those times except three, so 17 of those times, it's found in, verse, in chapters 13 through 21. 
So really, the, the love essence of the Gospel of John is really in these final words of Jesus Christ to his disciples, even more so than the teaching of love, even in the previous chapters all the way up to chapter 13. You say, now, why do you give us those facts and that kind of info, information? Simply to say this, that I believe the verses that we have before us tonight, right here, verses 31 to 35, right here is the very heart of the teaching on love from the heart of Jesus Christ because it's right at the center of it all that we hear in verse 34 those words, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Those are the key words to this entire section. Remember, Christ has already demonstrated the principle of love in a whole myriad of visible ways. Not only has he done that throughout the ministry to the Jews at large as he's ministering throughout Galilee and throughout the whole region of Jerusalem and the outskirts, each and every time he was with the Jews, he was ministering love to them, not only publicly but also privately with his disciples, which is recorded for us all the way here in chapter 13, beginning in verse 1 all the way through verse 11. These are love. Jesus has demonstrated great humility. Jesus has demonstrated a willingness to fully submit himself to the will of the Father, regardless of what would take place, to serve by becoming a servant to those who ought to be serving him. And so the whole thing is an expression, if you will, of love, a demonstration, a divine example of real love. But for us to truly understand, as we think about what is said here, for us to truly understand what is being said in verse 34, and the exhortation of the command to love one another, we have to gain an understanding of the immediate verses that precede it, verses 31 to 33, so that we, like the disciples who are sitting there around the table with Jesus Christ, can clearly see and do what is being said for us to do all the way back in verse 15, right? Jesus shows this example of love, and he says, I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Well, how do we understand that? How do we do that? Does he technically mean that we ought to go around, get water, and take each other's shoes off and wash each other's feet like he was doing? How does that work itself out as seen through verse 34, this commandment to love one another? And so that's what I want us to try to understand tonight. Now, I want us to notice that five times in just two verses, verses 31 and 32, John uses the word glorified or glory. And I think it's important for us to grasp just what is being said when he says that. Now the Son of Man is, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. What do you think the, the, the drive of the intent on the mind of the Spirit is when he tells us that? It's about the glory of God. Doxa, that's the word in the original language. Glory or glorify or it's the word doxa. Doxa simply means glory. In ancient times, that, that 
word came to mean to hold an opinion of. To hold an opinion of something, to hold an opinion of someone in a general kind of way. You just had an opinion about something. Had an opinion about someone, had an opinion about something, was to reference the glory of that thing, whatever it is you're referencing. In other words, you had a thought to express concerning whatever it was, a thing or or a person. And over time, it became more specific. Over time, it honed down its definition, its meaning to a more specific way, and it meant to hold a good opinion of something or someone. Not just to hold an opinion in general, but to hold a good opinion of something or someone. So it was no longer generic. It was now more specific over time. And it was primarily then used in a positive way. It was a positive word. To, to express a good opinion about someone was to reflect or to sh- talk about their glory. And it was in a good way. And again, over time, it took on further meaning. And it carried the meaning and added the meaning of praise or honor. So not just we're talking about something good, but you were praising something. You were bringing honor to something. And that's how many of us understand the word glorify today. We praise something. We honor something. So when we glorify something, that's what we are doing. We are praising it. We are honoring it. And so when we speak about God... To glorify God is to honor Him. It is to praise Him. And, of course, that's right for us to do. That is true of Him. All that His goodness is, all that He is, is to be praised. It is to be honored. And so we can conclude, then, to have a right opinion about God is to ascribe right opinions concerning God And that would be then to glorify God. It would be the same as praising Him. It would be what we do, we worship God. That's glorifying God. One writer put it this way, quote, God's glory consists of His intrinsic. Intrinsic means built in. What is inherent within Him by His very character. So God's intrinsic built-in worth. God's glory consists of His intrinsic, His built-in worth embodied in His character. And the acknowledgement of this worth by those who are His people is to glorify Him or to worship Him, unquote. And I think that's exactly what it is. God's intrinsic, built-in character is His glory. That is who He is. Remember when Moses said to God, I want, to, I want to see you. And God said, you can't see me, but I'll show you my glory. And he put him in the cleft of the rock, and he hit him there, and he, he passed his attributes by him. It was the intrinsic character of God, and the reflection of that character to us is his glory. And man's acknowledgement of that, and man's acknowledgement of that worth of him based upon who he is is worship of his glory it's important for us to understand this because jesus here uses that word in two ways in this text he uses it in a present tense way 
and as something happening in a future tense way. In the present tense, he is referring to both his own glory and to the Father's glory, or we could say he's referring to his own intrinsic character and worth and the Father's intrinsic character and worth. And then in a future tense, he is referring to the glory that he was to receive as a result of his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father in heaven. So let's look at what he says in verse 31. The present tense glory. Notice what he says. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. These are amazing words. These are amazing because Christ said this just hours before he's going to be crucified. And just after Judas has gone out to meet with the rulers of the Jewish community and set in motion the very events that would lead up to that very crucifixion. So he's he's saying these words prior to his crucifixion and just after Judas has betrayed him. And so when he says, now the Son of Man is glorified, he's speaking in the present tense. He's speaking, now he's being glorified. And the question that comes to my mind as I think about the context and the the flow of the narrative here from John's Gospel, and possibly it's come to your mind as well as we've been just thinking about this, How is this glorifying? How is this situation glorifying to Jesus Christ? How is it glorifying to the Father? It's present tense. Now is the Son of Man glorified? In other words, how is this situation about which these words are speaking, how does it speak to his intrinsic worth? How does it speak to his intrinsic character and value as the Son of God and of God the Father in His intrinsic worth. You notice that Christ is speaking about a present tense worth of Himself and a present tense worth of His Father, and yet it comes in the midst of betrayal and imminent death. So how can the undeserved death of the Son of the living God be glorified? How does that speak of his intrinsic value? Let me just give us two quick reasons why Christ and the Father's glory is seen through the imminent death of Christ on the cross. First is what we've been talking about all Sunday morning, and that is the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification. Christ and the Father are glorified in and through the cross, in and through this very moment, because at the cross there was made a way for all who repent of their sin to be declared innocent before God the Father. What God had set in motion in eternity past in electing those who would come to believe was accomplished in time at the cross. God could declare innocent those who were once guilty because Christ at the cross 
died. God the Son and God the Father are glorified through the cross work of Christ because what took place in Adam was reversed for all who believe in Christ. We we referred to some of this this morning in Romans chapter 5. And I just want to quickly return there for a moment tonight um, just to have this in our mind as we're thinking about this. Romans chapter 5, we, we read these words in verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. That is, in a nutshell, the essence of the entire doctrine of justification. Justification is that declared righteousness, that declared innocent based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ before God. Paul says that through Adam, one act of sin, the entire humanity was plunged into the cesspool of sin and all of humanity is guilty before God. In and of themselves, no one can stand righteous before God the Father. But Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, and He cannot and did not ever succumb to sin, but rather obeyed the Father fully, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you and I who believe upon Jesus Christ for our justification are declared righteous before the Father because Christ died in our place on the cross. That speaks to his intrinsic value. That speaks to his worth. His glory is seen in its greatest way through the cross. No one else was worthy to pay the price of the sin of mankind. The only one with the intrinsic worth would be God himself. And that is exactly what Christ is. He is God. And that is exactly what the cross showed and accomplished. His glory. And so Christ is presently glorified in this moment because He is going to the place to reverse the curse. He's going to reverse the penalty for our sin. And secondly, He reverses the power of sin. In other words, he ended the power of Satan himself. So it deals with the doctrine of justification, but it also deals with the doctrine of sanctification, which is the power of sin. Um, Hebrews chapter 2, in verse 14, says this, Since then the children share in flesh and blood. The writer of Hebrews just simply saying, since we're all the same by way of our humanity, since we all share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Why? So that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. And who is that? 
That's the devil. You see, the sting and the fear of death is gone in Jesus Christ. No longer are we who believe by faith bound as slaves to sin. No longer is it our taskmaster. No longer does it have ownership of us. We are no longer bound by the enemy of the cross to the fear of death. We are free in Christ to do what is right before Him. And so we are sanctified. This is the idea of sanctification. We are sanctified. We are set apart. We are holy. We are being continually sanctified, set apart by God in a practical way as we submit ourselves by the way of the Spirit to the things of the Spirit, to the Word of God and obedience to the Word of God. We are being sanctified just as we are sanctified in the ultimate sense of God and we will one day forever be completely and totally set apart forever, sanctified. And all of that was accomplished at the cross. It shows and demonstrates the present tense worth of Christ through the cross. Judas doesn't know it, but he has, by God's design, set in motion that direction. And so Jesus can say, now is the Son of Man glorified. How is the cross glorifying to the Father and to the Son? Through the cross, we who believe upon Jesus Christ have been justified, and we are and have been sanctified, and both of those show the intrinsic value of the character of God. Then Jesus transitions to the future tense. Verse 32, he says, If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. So here's what Jesus is saying. Since the Father is glorified through the death of the Son on the cross, in that he is seen as both the one who is just and the justifier of the one who is a repentant sinner, then the Father will also, immediately following the death of Jesus Christ, shine forth the worth of the Son before the entire world. That's exactly what took place, isn't it? Because of Jesus Christ being the Son of God in the flesh, could actually satisfy the righteous penalty that sin requires, God the Father, what? Raised Him from the dead. He exalted Him to His right hand, which is the place of power through His ascension back to glory. We know this to be true. We know the reality of this in our own hearts and minds because we hear it in Philippians chapter 2 as Paul is writing to the Philippian church about Jesus Christ. He says in Philippians chapter 2 these very striking words to us. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
In other words, as a result of that, as the outflow of that, as the outcome of that, the reality that we see because of all of that, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, the Father is glorified through the Son. And the Son is glorified through the Father so that the entire Godhead is glorified by all of humanity. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow. Believers and unbelievers alike, one day all will publicly profess the intrinsic worth of God. One day, all men will give a good opinion concerning God and His very nature. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you will live with God forever. If you have not trusted in Christ as Savior, then you will spend eternity separated from God in the place of eternal torment and pain, hell itself. Christ is speaking about love to his disciples in John chapter 13. And when he demonstrates love, that expression is worship of the Father. And the expression of love, the demonstration of love, shines forth his intrinsic value, the Father's intrinsic value, to men. Christ says to us, to those disciples that were with him that night, he says, little children, verse 33, I am with you a little while longer. You shall seek me, and as I said to the Jews, I know, I now say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Why would Jesus say that? He had said something similar before. He even references it here in verse 33. As I said to the Jews, he said it back in chapter 7, the same verse numbers, verse 33 and 34. Ironically, how the people who put verse numbers put it that way. What he said and what he meant to the Jewish leaders by saying that is not what he said and meant to his disciples. He said it before, but they didn't get it. The words are the same, but the meaning and the intent are different. Because what he meant for the Jewish leaders was an indictment. It was an indictment against them for their lack of faith in him. They had refused to believe who he was. They had refused to, to believe that he was, in fact, who he said he was. There was no way they would go where he was about to go. There was no way they could follow him to the glories of heaven. They didn't believe upon him. They couldn't go into the presence of the Father because they were still in their sin. So when he said, where I go, you cannot come, he meant, you will not come. It was an indicting word to them. They didn't believe upon him. That's not what he means to, the, to his disciples. 
The Jewish leaders had refused to believe and only those who rested in Christ would be in the presence of the Father with Christ. So those Jewish leaders couldn't go go with him for that very reason, but to his disciples, he did not mean that. They were believers. The only reason they could not go with him now was because they, as all believers, are now his representatives on earth. We are the reflection of him. We are the reflection of his glory to the world. We reflect his intrinsic worth to the world. That's why he says to them in verse 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I loved you, that you also love one another. It wasn't a new commandment by way of chronology. In other words, it wasn't as if they had never heard this commandment before and this was a new one that was somehow new on the list of commandments that they they needed to know. This wasn't something new in a numerical way. It was something new in essence. Something that was qualitatively different, qualitatively new. The Jews had always been told to love. They had always been told to love one another. In fact, Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Leviticus 19, verse 18. Those are the very words that Jesus refer, is referring to when asked, What is the greatest commandment? Jesus is referring to Leviticus 19, verse 18. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And then the second one, Leviticus 19, verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. They knew the law. They knew the commandment. It was not new by some way of a chronological kind of idea. So the commandment is an old commandment. Something new was being revealed. What was it? What was new in its revelation was how it was to be lived out. It's no longer just had this ethnic connotation. Leviticus 19 verse 18, when the law was given, love your neighbor, meant really, in essence, the the Jew. Make sure you guys are operating amongst one another in that right kind of way. It had the meaning of love for your own physical family, love for your own physical heritage but now it had a spiritual connotation it wasn't just love that it was love love those for sure but particularly love those who are of the family of faith in this way why why because that reflects the very nature and the very character of god to the world that's why jesus says verse 35 by this All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, this is a testimony command. This is a command about the church. This is a command about us. People ought to be saying about us what some of you have testified to tonight during our time of sharing, and that is people wonder about us. They wonder about why we're like we the way we are. They ought to be wondering that. Why? Because we don't love like the world loves. We don't treat one another like the world treats one another. 
the whole world will know whose we are if we love as Christ loved, if we reflect the intrinsic value of Christ to one another through how we operate and treat one another. That's why we are here. That's why God left us here for a time. So that we, as His disciples, would do exactly what He commanded that we should do as He did in verse 15. I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. What does that mean? Reflect the intrinsic worth of Christ to one another by serving as He served. By loving as He loved. By giving of yourself in such a way to others with such self-abasement that you would take even the place of the lowest place simply to serve others so that the world might see Christ in that loving of one another. So the intrinsic value of the glory of Christ would be seen by the world. Now I want to do a little test as we close our time out tonight from this text. We know... God is love. The Bible tells us that. God is love. And since He is love, I want you for a moment to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. A passage we go to often when we think about love. It gets read in weddings and all kinds of things. 1 Corinthians 13. And I want to substitute for us the name Jesus for the word love in this text. Just listen to what it says. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have Jesus, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have Jesus, I'm nothing. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but I do not have Jesus, it profits me nothing. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He is not jealous. Jesus does not brag and is not arrogant. He does not act unbecomingly. He does not seek his own. He is not provoked. He does not take into an account a wrong suffered. He doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus never fails. But... If there are gifts of prophecy, they're going to be done away with. If there's tongues, they're going to cease. If there's knowledge, it'll be done away with. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. Think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, 
We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have also fully been known. But now abide faith, hope, and Jesus. These three. But the greatest of these is Jesus. We can rejoice when we read it that way, can't we? Jesus is certainly all of that. But Jesus said in John 13, verse 15, as we saw, that we are to follow his example and that we're blessed if we do it. So now listen to what it says when we read it with the phrase, follow Jesus in the place of love. If I speak with the tongues of men, and of angels, but I do not follow Jesus in that, I've become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all the mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not follow Jesus in that, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor, if I deliver my body to be burned, but I do not follow Jesus in it, it profits me nothing. To follow Jesus is to be patient. To follow Jesus is to be kind. To follow Jesus is to not be jealous. Following Jesus means I don't brag. In following Jesus, I'm not arrogant. I, I, I don't want to act unbecomingly. That's Following Jesus doesn't do that. Following Jesus doesn't mean means I don't seek my own. I, I'm not provoked easily. I don't take things of wrong against me to account. Following Jesus means I do not rejoice in unrighteousness, but I rejoice with the truth. Following Jesus means I bear all things. I believe all things. I hope all things. I endure all things. Following Jesus means I never fail. Verse 12, for now I see in a mirror dimly, then face to face, now in part, but I shall fully know fully just as I also have been fully known, but abide faith, hope, and following Jesus Christ in those. The greatest is following Christ. You see, when we read it that way, the result upon our heart is crushing, isn't it? Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If we're like Jesus to one another. I see Christ and I realize just how far I am from him. Let's bow together, ask God to help us love like that. Love as he loved us so the world might know that we are his and that he is indeed worthy of worship. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. It seems rather mundane to even say the words when they mean so little. 
We want them to carry the weight of what our true heart desires, and yet words don't seem to carry that weight. Help us to reflect that in our lives, what we say with our mouths. Your word clearly tells us that we are to live in love, that we are to love one another, and thereby you are glorified in that. The reflection of your intrinsic value and worth is seen by others, and they want to know what it is we are all about. I wonder sometimes, Lord, if your church doesn't seem to grow because we as Christians don't seem to love. Help us do that. I know we do that in so many different ways, and yet there's so many ways in which we can. So thank you for putting us in the wine press of your great mercy and love, crushing us and showing us exactly what it is we need to do. Help us do that as your people. As we see your love reflected, help us be greater reflectors of it. Never taking the personal offense, but always just leaning on you. Longing for that day when we will go where you are and see you face to face. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.